3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today you'll hear conversations on politics, alternative news, community actions and other updates. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast for another edition of the Climate Emergency Broadcast Series. My name is Carly and today I'll be joined by my co-host Kay. We're coming remotely via the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Today, our guest is Dr. Rebecca Cross. Rebecca Cross is a lecturer in human geography in the School of Geosciences and a postdoctoral researcher in the School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Her research interests are founded in rural geography and sociology at the nexus of human-nature interactions, with a focus on natural resource management, regenerative and sustainable agriculture, farming subcultures, local knowledge and citizen science. Indigenous land and food knowledge, grassroots innovation and agroecological extension. Rebecca currently works on an ACIAR funded project in northwest Cambodia and is involved in other projects related to carbon farming and native grasses for grains in New South Wales. Thank you so much for joining us, us today. Thanks, Kay. Thanks for having me. Your research has a focus on natural resource management, regenerative and sustainable agriculture, and farming subcultures. What got you interested in that? Uh, I suppose my um, family, so my grandparents and now parents, own and manage a dairy farm um, up on the mid-north coast. So uh, really I got very interested in not only um, how people's attitudes and behaviours, sometimes there's a disconnect there, but how that was happening in the farming space and then in, in specific relation to environmental attitudes and environmental practices um, and looking at yeah, farmers' attitudes of being a steward and wanting to leave the farm in a better um, state than they received it, but then and then what sort of practices or behaviours they were doing uh, physically on the farm and where those disconnects were between that attitude and behaviour and why, what those barriers were. So I got really interested in that, sort of seeing it in my own family. Wonderful. Takes me back to my childhood. (laughs) (laughs) So getting on to Australia's agricultural production, which is about $61 billion a year, we export about 65% of what we produce. 
Now, the 2014 BZE plan, which was called Land Use, Agriculture and Forestry, had a value of about $58 billion per year. So that in seven years, that hasn't changed much. But a statistic I found interesting from that report was that agricultural production only accounts for about 2% of Australia's GDP, but uses about 60% of the land. Given that Australia is the smallest, driest and lowest lying inhabited continent in the world, according to the BZE report, is that a sustainable way to use the land? Uh, no. <laughs> um, I suppose from an economic angle, no. It depends on, I mean, GDP is pretty limited in what it's calculating. So going on that as a benchmark for, you know, I'd, that's not really taking into account all the other sort of ecosystem services that farmland does provide. Um, and especially if if we're looking at how much it's producing, we're really looking at high input agriculture um, and there's only so much land in Australia um, where the right soils or right or irrigation is available where you can actually produce that sort of level um, of economic output if you're looking at it at that end of the scale. Um, but if you're looking at land use, and the potential for low-input agriculture and the potential for um, production and conservation to be integrated so that you're producing at the same time that you're providing essential ecosystem services like um, biodiversity or soil stability um, or water quality, then accounting for that um, perhaps would lift that figure a little higher in the economics world, but uh, we can definitely do better in terms of what we're producing and then um, the density on our farms, but perhaps that that lends itself to a discussion as well about what plants we're producing and what sort of ecosystems we could develop to produce multiple products at the same time um, in a sustainable way that's more about conservation as well. Well, it takes me on to my next question. <laughs> you, you've done a lot of work looking into land management practices by Indigenous people, and so I'd like to concentrate on that to get a better understanding of how land can be used or could be managed prior to British settlement, especially given that the BZE report found that since colonisation, Australia has seen more biodiversity loss than any other continent, and this rate is still one of the highest globally. How does that affect traditional land management practices? Oh, that affects it greatly. Um, I mean, definitely Bruce Pascoe is more of an expert in this field and his, his book really ties together um, a lot of those issues nicely. But when it comes to Australian agriculture uh, as a high input model, it could perhaps also been seen as a very colonial tool in the landscape. Um, so disconnecting people from being able to walk their song lines and therefore be able to manage the land um, in that sort of consistent way across the landscape. Um, I mean, traditional burning practices, people are starting, communities are starting to bring those back in New South Wales. Um, there are definitely groups around the Central West 
who, uh, because of the brutality of colonization, um, knowledge, I don't think was lost from what I've heard from elders, but definitely fragmented. Um, so trying to bring that knowledge back has involved traveling to other landscapes like, um, in the Cape and then bringing that fire knowledge back and adapting it to the landscape that elders are familiar with, um, and bringing back those practices. So there are, there are regenerative farmers and others who are starting to really key into this and, um, hire fee for service indigenous ranger groups to do cultural burning on their properties um, for conservation and production purposes. Um, but in terms of indigenous land management, I mean, it, it is, I suppose it's very complex and it's very different in each part of Australia and how much traditional as well as contemporary practice has been integrated into what different communities do um, varies greatly. Um, just looking at, you know, savannah burning for carbon emissions up in the north versus um, Indigenous-run agricultural enterprises that are combining sort of more Western or um, forms of agriculture with Indigenous land management practices and Indigenous cultural knowledge of landscapes, um, there's a lot of different different sort of amalgamations of knowledge that Indigenous peoples, people use. Um, in New South Wales, I mean, we work a lot with local Aboriginal land councils um, and looking at the types of land that they have under different arrangements, native title and other arrangements. Um, and there, are, there is a big will for communities to be able to make some sort of income out of those blocks of land. Um, I mean, local Aboriginal land councils, their funding models maybe give them one full-time worker a week. Um, and those full-time workers, I mean, they are the peak cultural body. So from language to housing to land management to cultural practice, they, you know, that's sort of a one-stop shop in a lot of places. Um, so being able to make some income out of the properties they have, but at the same time uh, not only heal the land with some regenerative practices, but also bring back traditions of walking country with family and having that intergenerational transmission, it's kind of um, there, there's potential to tick all boxes by looking at native grasses um, in particular um, as a basis for that. Talking about native grasses, we spoke with Bruce Pascoe recently and I presume you're referring to his book Dark Emu and he told us this amazing story when last year his farmland was burnt by the fires, those catastrophic fires that raged through eastern Australia and he was getting ready to harvest seed from his kangaroo grass crop to make bread, but the whole thing burnt down. He said, though, within 10 weeks, no, six weeks, another grass, dancing grass, sprang to life and he was able to make bread and beer from it. And then within six months, it had produced another crop. Isn't that an amazing story about the resilience and also the fire effects on native grasses? Yeah, definitely. And, they're, yeah, their resilience, the resilience of native grasses, um, 
and the fact that they'll spring back. I mean, yeah, you see those just those photos of native grass pastures versus annual pastures during drought, and even though the native grass is dead, it's not bare soil. Um, there's still a structure there that's still holding the soil in place. It's still allowing for water infiltration. It's still feeding microbes in the soil. So um, they are resilient. And, and yeah, being, I mean, as a productive, for their productive value, that resilience I think is especially important um, with what you're mentioning about bushfires and, and, and drought and maybe the increasing severity of that with climate change as time goes on, it's going to be that much more important for us to focus on those plants that are so adapted to this continent and can continue to adapt. You mentioned before about local Aboriginal councils. Are you um, working on getting them producing um, native grasses and crops and yeah. working out what to do in certain areas and then perhaps teaching the rest of us how to do things and manage things more sustainably? <laughs> yes, yeah, so um, at the University of Sydney, we um, had a project that was called um, Paddock to Plate, Native Grasses for Grains, um, and that was looking at all aspects of the potential for a native grains industry. Um so looking at what does that look like economically, what does that look like socially and culturally, what does that look like um, production-wise, what does that look like as a value chain, um, and at the other end, what sort of products can be made, um, how you ensure consumer equity at the other end so that everyone can then access those products, um, as well as the nutritional profiles of different species, so grass species as well as other species that live in native grasslands like purslane, um, which is known for its high omega. Um, so that project kind of looked at all those different aspects, but a key part of that project was our partnership with the Narrabri Local Aboriginal Land Council and the Wee Ward Narrabri, I'm sorry, the Wee Ward Local Aboriginal Land Council as well. And uh, as time has gone on, um, our chief investigator, Dr. Angela Patterson, has connected with a lot more communities that have become interested in this project through word of mouth. Um, and so that is a part of what we're doing. We have uh, the Sydney University farm up there in Narrabri where we're starting to plant some native grass uh, fields for different types of trials with uh, looking at cool burning, rotational grazing, pasture cropping, um, different ways of harvesting native grasses, different ways of threshing native grasses, etc. Um, but our plan is to have satellite sort of projects on Indigenous-owned land um, with Indigenous communities, um, and different communities have different aspirations. Um, so I sort of said before, like, some for some communities... It's more about just having the native grasses and being able to regenerate that land and, and to be able to have cultural transmission of knowledge. For other communities, um, equally important is the ability to make uh, a sustainable living out of that grassland and to trial other things like growing um, certain fruit trees that the communities, uh, you know, perhaps really... Like, so for instance, there are certain pockets where there are quondongs and 
when they are ripe, when they get ripe, <laughs> the whole community is there to harvest those particular group of trees. So the community is very interested in growing more of those sort of trees within their grassland, um, as well as other key medicine plants um, and that are wanted, that are in high demand by the community. So, um, yeah, that project is progressing at the moment and more and more partners are coming on board. Mungandai Local Aboriginal Land Council and others further afield in the um, Gamilaroi Nation uh, are involved in that. But beyond that, in New South Wales, there are many other communities. Um, the Orange Local Aboriginal Land Council, uh, the Bathurst Elder Group, there are a lot of communities looking at wanting to produce native grasses on their properties um, and, and also have nurseries and things like that associated um, so that they can sell those products locally as well. That's fantastic. And it sounds very similar to Beyond Zero Emissions, Zero Carbon Communities, where they started off helping one community and, and then more and more came on board to work out how they could get to zero carbon as quickly as possible. <laughs> you, you were talking about bread making and the fact that it's time to resurrect Australia's ancient bread-making traditions and that it, a native staple Australian crop would allow us to grow food much more suited to our environment. Can we go through that process of how that would work? Firstly, let's talk about the benefits of producing native crops. Um, yeah, sure. So the benefits are, are huge um, and sort of cross all sustainability categories um i mean starting just at the in the paddock the benefits of bringing back native grasses are biodiversity as habitat um for their potential to maintain soil structures maintain um moisture infiltration and moisture content um the microbial benefits that they have the ability to sequester carbon um, there's multiple benefits in the field, um, and then as well their productive value, I guess, on top of that. <laughs> um, and then from that point, uh, how they get into being a baked good is something that we're exploring. I mean, threshing is a little bit of a, a sticking point because our current machinery doesn't get the seed out of the gloom um, or the seed casing so easily, so that's a current issue that's being, I mean, trialled and aired. Um, and from that point, grinding it down into different types of flour, um, there's a lot of work on, on how you do that and then what sort of products are best, whether it's bread or whether it's cookies or pasta or, you know, what product does that taste best in and then what ratio of native grains, flour to conventional white flour or wholemeal flour. Um, what sort of mix there is best. Um, and then the health benefits of that are quite huge because looking at some of our um, nutritional data that's came out, that's come out of this project that's currently being published, um, native grains are, are quite high in, in certain proteins. Um, and we're doing further work to really nut down their, um, benefits and compare those to conventional flour. Um, but bringing back more native foods into our diets 
is not only good for the environment but good for us, um, good economically because we're we're not putting as many inputs in or taking as much out of the environment. Um, and in terms of the actual product that is developed, I suppose we should also discuss provenance, which is a key aspect that Indigenous communities are really keen on um, embedding into this type of industry. So when you have a native grass field, it's not one, it's not a monoculture, it's not one type of grass. Um, so when you harvest that field, it might be different year to year and it might be different from neighbouring communities. Um, so it means you might get a different product um, at the end of the day in every baked good. <laughs> Uh, so being able to market that is one thing, but also being able to understand, I mean, it comes back to that idea that our food, um, we, we can't have this uniform food that, um, I mean, it's, it's going back to those ideas of accepting diversity in our, in our food and on our palate, not just in our fields and in our pastures. Everything that we've, all the systems that we've structured have to be dismantled and and um, reinvented, essentially, don't they? Yeah. Right from I, planting I, to farming to producing to packaging to marketing and yeah. eating. Definitely, definitely. I mean, um, and, and it has to happen incrementally as well. Um, that pulling down has to happen at the same time as something is building um, and the regenerative farming world is out there building that as we speak. Um, I mean, it's very interesting in terms of what this might look like on the ground as well, because talking with communities, there's also a want um, amongst Indigenous communities to connect more with farmers in their local area. Um, and especially in the Narrabri area, which is um, a sort of hardcore cotton growing area, um, there's a lot of farmers that in that in the in that area and and beyond that have what they consider more marginal land um, that currently they, they don't get any productive value from. So being able to encourage native grasses on those portions of land um and indigenous peoples being able to then harvest that native grass in in some sort of agreement with local farmers um there's a real possibility there for expanding how much land is currently being regenerated for native grassland um and being able to boost an an indigenous enterprise um reliant on native grasses so that they're not just reliant on harvesting from indigenous owned land um that that harvest can sort of come from across the landscape a local landscape um but as to the whole transition yeah i mean in our project we've really looked at you know for this to be an indigenous controlled sector it really means the value chain needs to be indigenous owned and controlled um which means from as you say, like from producing grains to uh, processing to packaging to marketing to then selling um, and then to buying. So that's a huge issue in the native food sort of realm that a lot of the products, because native products, I suppose, in comparison to the heavily um, plant-bred wheats and other uh, cereals and other products 
um, that have high yield potential. I suppose native products, there's a premium sort of placed on that final, um, that final product that is then sold to top end, uh, restaurants, niche bakeries, niche, uh, other native foods outlets that may be at a price that is, you know, brings up some social justice issues around access to those foods. Um, and who has access to those foods and how, and, and, and ensuring that if Indigenous communities are there at every point along from production to consumption. So that not only are communities producing foods, but eating foods as well. And you mentioned before that the, maybe, um, there is evidence that there is a higher nutritional value for the native grains compared to the introduced wheat species that we have at the moment, that would add value as well, I would imagine. Yes, that would certainly add value. But um, like most sort of superfoody products, you need a good marketing campaign um, and for people to recognise that value and then want to pay for um, that added value. But, yeah, in, in a future that's focusing on nutrient-dense foods, um, native grains could play a really pivotal role in that future. I remember probably 10 years ago, Peru, which virtually had the world's market on quinoa, and that was for, for locals, um, the rest of the world found out it was a superfood, so-called, and then all of a sudden the locals didn't have access to it because it was too expensive. Mm-hmm. It was quite sad, really. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a big consideration as well in, in our work. Um, once we do all this research, produce this science, how do we ensure that Indigenous communities will remain at the forefront um, of this industry and retain ownership of this industry um, and that it doesn't just get taken over by entrepreneurs who go out and grow more native grain for less cost and then can sell it that way. Um, so I suppose um, cultural heritage and the cultural IP needs to also be part of the marketing and the value in the products that, that come from Indigenous communities to try and um, retain that stronghold. Is there an issue um, in terms of Indigenous Australians' land rights and or native title rights and interest? Uh, because I think 30% of Australian continent is owned or is Indigenous land, but only 0.01% of the water entitlements. So are the water entitlements of concern if they're the ones managing the crops? Um, I suppose if it's for native grasses, not so much. Um, they don't really need irrigation. Um, perhaps a little supplementary irrigation in sometimes, but for the most part, uh, they're not reliant on having water rights. But that doesn't mean that I don't agree that uh, Indigenous peoples definitely should have um, water rights and that cultural water rights should be um, just as considered as production and environmental flows. Um, there should be a provision for cultural flows as well in that mix. Um, 
but if anything, native grasses uh, help retain moisture in the landscape, you know, help with water quality at the other end. So um, they're really providing a service for Australia and, and water. And that no one puts a value on that, unfortunately. No. <laughs> well, not yet. I mean, payments for ecosystem services, that that is a world that will expand. Um, so there's already, I mean, you'd be well aware of carbon credits. Um, that, is, that is a form of an ecosystem service. Um, I mean, there are different schemes worldwide where farmers are paid to do certain practices that maintain water quality, specifically in areas um, or in voluntary agreements with, you know, bottled water companies um, who pay a subsidy to, to farmers to change their practices or to maintain a certain low input practice um, for that benefit. Uh, so the potential is there for those sort of markets to expand for sure um, and, and pay not just for water, but for those that are maintaining water quality and um, and water hydration in our landscapes. That would be wonderful if that was to happen. Yes. <laughs> you mentioned in an article that Australia exports 65% of the food that it produces. Is it possible that native crops could actually supply much more of the local demands and therefore allow more exports? Uh, there is that potential. I mean, I think there needs to be a lot more done to develop a native grains um, food base uh, and then the types of products that we can develop at the other end to kind of quantify that and make that final comparison. I mean, the potential is there theoretically, uh, but actually it, it might take a while to um, to make up for those uh to add to those exports. Yeah, that might just take a while. But well, the potential. <laughs> I guess when you consider that um, before colonisation, there weren't 25 million people in Australia. So, so trying to feed the masses now would be rather difficult, wouldn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, I mean, and some products taste okay, just all native grains, but... Um, they're still reliant. The best tasting products are still reliant on a bit of a mix with, with other types of yeah, um, conventional cereals and flour. And, yeah. Another paper you contributed to investigated carbon farming in Australia, and I know that large areas of Western Australia and the Northern Territory are actively involved in different types of carbon farming. What are the benefits of carbon farming incentives that the federal government's providing? Um, I suppose it depends on which particular methodology is being used um, and in which landscape. So, for example, vena burning that is that is um, done by communities in Northern Territory and, and WA um, and across the top end into Queensland as well, um, that's really providing huge benefits for keeping people on country, giving people jobs um, that they're able to maintain in remote parts of Australia, as well as um, being able to conduct cultural practice, reduce emissions, obviously, by burning fires um, in the cooler 
or the, the wetter months, um, rather than letting everything build up and sort of explode in the late dry season. Um, it's providing benefits for habitat because hatch burning happens. It's providing benefits for um, managing invasive species, looking after endangered species. The benefits of savanna burning are huge. Um, but when we talk about maybe a different methodology, so something that we investigated in that paper was more um, vegetation and avoided deforestation and human-induced regeneration, the two of the types of methods that um, we looked at in that paper. Um, and it's interesting, I mean, farmers in the rangelands sort of have the amount of land that makes um, it's sort of a quick grab <laughs> um, for quick uh, emissions reduction. You know, as you come further east, properties get smaller. Um, but it will happen as um, as the current um, emissions reduction scheme progresses. But farmers in some of those areas who have received some of that income, it's very lucrative in the vegetation um, sort of realm where you can get paid for 100 years of keeping your vegetation, you can get paid for that in a 10-year period. Um, and a lot of farmers are in the rangelands that I've talked to are actually using that funding to transition their farm into uh, regenerative agriculture. Um, <laughs> so using it to landscape and put in fencing, but also to sow native grasses. So how that's money, that money is being used as well is having an additional benefit. Um, but then if you're talking soil carbon, which is definitely at the heart of uh, regenerative practice and bringing back um, grasslands in particular, um, because of how much carbon can be stored and sequestered, um, that's really what most people are waiting for because that will add that other economic basis to an enterprise based on native grasses. Um, but obviously there's, I mean, there's a lot of issues with with being able to measure soil carbon um, because of how much it fluctuates um, naturally. Um, and then on top of that, the cost of measuring soil carbon. So people have probably seen in the news um, the government wants to get it down to $3 per hectare. Um, at the moment, I think, I wouldn't be quoted on this, but I think it's around $100 a hectare. And um, the agricultural scientists at Sydney Uni have recently developed um, a machine that you can um, glide over the land and it will give you a reading for soil carbon, and that's at about $50 per hectare. So, again, while there's barriers, there's big potential um, if if we can find out, figure out a way to have more regenerative farmers being paid for soil carbon um, and Indigenous communities being paid for soil carbon, that that could be really be a game changer in the native grains um, towards a native grains dominance. Wow. And would satellite technology come into play too? Satellite technology definitely could, yes, um, because it can monitor um, and model. So it can monitor crop growth, um, crop health, 
uh, it can, I'm not too sure about that question. Okay. <laughs> what about in terms? Sorry, Kay. No, 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 that's good to know. I was actually thinking of it in terms of um, measuring carbon, but maybe it's, it's not accurate enough. Yeah, it can't really penetrate the soil, you know. Um, you could use it if the methodology for soil carbon, if you could use something as a proxy. So if you could use um, the amount of native grass sort of bases and how big they are um, on a property, if you could use that as a proxy for how much soil carbon you think is underneath, um, then, yeah, you could use satellite. Okay. But but to actually measure this, the carbon content would be prohibitive and nearly impossible. At the moment, yeah, with our technologies. Who knows, though, as we go forward, the money that's being pumped into satellite, um, especially in the private world. Thank you so much for your time today, Rebecca. We've been speaking to Rebecca Cross, a postdoctoral researcher from University of Sydney. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover the airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to the 3CR website and click on the donate button. Thank you for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Radio's Breakfast Programme. This morning we're bringing you alternative news, community action and updates. And now on the line we're joined by June Rema, Deputy CEO of the First People's Disability Network. June Rema joins us to speak about the proposed changes to the National Disability Insurance Scheme and will primarily be discussing mandatory independent assessments and the current experiences that First Nations people have when accessing NDIS. Welcome June, thank you for joining us on 3CR Breakfast. Good morning and um, happy morning to everyone on this lovely Thursday. So um, there's been a lot of news surrounding proposed changes to NDIS and um, one of the key proposed changes is mandatory independent assessments which will be used to determine someone's eligibility for NDIS. So can you explain the current process that people have to go through to receive NDIS and then also talk about if mandated what independent assessments will mean? So currently with the system, um, first of all, we've had um, slow roll-up with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disability understanding the system in general. But what normally happens, somebody um, refers or they can self-refer to the agency and, and they will get an appointment and they can ask for an Aboriginal community connector or local area coordinator to support them um, when the, the current... Um, interview person comes out and, and talks about what their needs may be. And and there are an array of resources that have been developed, um, particularly by FPDN, in um, supporting people to understand what that journey means in around having choice and control in their lives and understanding what supports they can get. So generally, it has been a soft journey for some people, 
But um, overall, what we've mostly seen, people, you know, do have problems accessing the service, particularly in rural and remote regions, because they don't understand the navigation of having, um, you know, the appropriate information ready um, to supply to the assessors at that time. And, and the agency, that there hasn't been a lot of flexibility around, you know, having those conversations with people and supporting the pe- people to have that ready-made plan in um, asking for, you know, what their needs may be around, you know, having in-home support or, you know, utilising equipment or accessing, you know, other support in their general community to, you know, give them a better and fulfilling life. Mm. So, you know, what we, we fear now with this independent assessment, we've already got issues, people accessing the scheme. We, we just fear there'll be more, you know, aggravated disadvantage because of the intersection of Aboriginality. And, you know, we haven't been assured that these independent assessors will be, you know, Aboriginal or understand culture or understand, you know, for our mob living on country, what that means for them. The, the other issue, we, you know, we feel the, the, the community will feel like they're under greater surveillance and, and we worry that, you know, more children may be removed because of the lack of um, NDIS support if that independent assessor assumes that they don't need supports in their life. And the two issues that have come up lately is around fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and um, acquired brain injury not being under the, you know, the NDIS. These are, you know, two big um, issues that happen across all communities, not just Aboriginal communities, and, and need a lot of support, you know, to help these individuals navigate, you know, services and, and, and have a reasonable standard of life, you know, to support them entering, you know, education or employment. So we have real fears around these independent assessments that, you know, there's been a lack of safety in the process or, you know, how they will deliver to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Yeah. And um, just for listeners, the Morrison government has actually been accused of tampering with an independent NDIS uh, report uh, because documents released to Labor under Freedom of Information showed that a 2019 review of the NDIS was amended by public servants to include the section advocating for the rollout of permanent independent assessments for participants. So uh, really, I don't know if that was an independent NDIS assessment at all. Correct, yeah. And, I mean, you know, what we've lost here is about, you know, allowing people, you know, with disability, you know, and particularly if our, our mobile, you know, we're not talking about large numbers, you know, we're only 3% of the population. So if we want to change the life course for, you know, particularly young children with disability, not ending up, you know, with a lack of education or a lack of appropriate housing, you know, we need this social model of care. You know, that was the, at the beginning, the NDIS was about, you know, supporting people with disability to have the best life they can. It wasn't about cost cutting, mm. you know, because in the end, you know, we're marginalised and disadvantaged um, those, you know, that need this most. And generally, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disability are the most disadvantaged Australians. So, you know, to cost-cut support to, you know, vulnerable people that, you know, for a lot of our mob are living in poverty because 
you know, the family can't support their individual needs around that disability. So, you know, I mean, we need to ask ourselves as a civil society, you know, if we don't help our most vulnerable, if we're cost-cutting, you know, at the edge where people really need, you know, our social support, you know, what sort of society and what sort of government are we? Mm, yeah, we'll speak a bit more about cost-cutting soon because I think that is one of the reasons why the government is saying that they are bringing in these independent assessments. Um, it's because currently my understanding of the NDIS is that people can go to their own specialists and then those specialists um, that they already have um, people um, who have disabilities, who have those specialists, can um, then get those specialists to write reports um, and then apply for NDIS. Um, but now with the independent assessments um, potentially rolling out, it means that these people, um, these specialists that don't already have a relationship with people who have disabilities, are then going to come into their lives and then um, speak to them. I think I've seen the news say for about three hours and then determine if somebody um, has uh, is eligible for NDIS. Um, and, yeah, that's just a way that the government sees as cost-cutting. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, you know, really, you know, that you really think that people or families with disability, you know, want to lie about, you know, what their needs are. These are you know, these are people that just want support like everyone else to access, you know, community and, and programs or employment like everyone else. You know, it's not about being greedy. They just want the things that enable them to, you know, have a better standard of living. Mm. So but when we're asking for a stranger, an independent assessor that doesn't know this person, doesn't know their day-to-day needs, and as we know for a lot of people with disability, you know, you have your good days and your bad days. So if this independent assessor comes in on a good day and they think, well, you don't need this or you don't need that, you know, ultimately, you know, they're going to end up with lesser support and, and which then creates more issues for, you know, the families and how they can pick up, you know, supporting that individual because now they can't get any further support, you know, in a system that was built for people with disabilities. Mm. So, you know, we have real concerns and, and, you know, these barriers, just keep piling up, particularly for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. You know, um, we already, you know, have fear of government. We have fear of processes. We have fear of services not being culturally appropriate. Now, you know, we have a stranger coming into our home that says, you know, for a three-hour period, that don't really know you, you know, don't know how you live day to day and assess, you know, whether you can have a quality of life or not. I mean, I just find it, you know, appalling that we're cost-cutting, you know, as I said earlier, to the most vulnerable, mm. you know. And, the, and these people, you know, generally it's been found they don't have large wants. It's just mm. general stuff to, you know, to enable them to get out of bed every day, to, you know, to access, you know, employment or education or training or just to, you know, get out and about and, and have a better health and well-being. Mm, absolutely. And um, according to the Saturday paper, leaked documents reveal that the NDIS has set up a sustainability action task force and that task force has been created to limit both the number of new applicants joining NDIS and the growth of spending on current participants. 
Um, and yeah, there's just this whole idea of compliance now. And um, I've been reading news articles and there's, um, you know, links to the logics of robo debt, where now potentially the NDIS will be trying to regain money off participants when, you know, the NDIS messes up and, um, you know, potentially gives money to people and people they say will be misusing it. And um, yeah, what are your comments on that? Yeah, this doesn't happen. People don't mis- misuse. You know, it's very rare, you know. If people are getting, you know... Um, I mean, first of all, it's approved before they get a funding package. Mm. And then it's reviewed yearly about, you know, um, whether that package needs to be increased or maybe, you know, you, your lifestyle or your access is improved so you don't need, say, hypothetically, more transport in your package. So, you know, I mean, this is just... Again, you know, cost-cutting to a group of people that, you know, can't speak for themselves most of the time, can't, you know, don't have enough advocacy to support them in their life. And in regards to this task force, you know, our ask is how many First Nations people were asked to be part of this? Were people with disability a part of this task force? You know, who are this task force? These are non, you know... Aboriginal or non-people living with a disability that don't really understand the day-to-day struggles for, you know, those individuals. So, you know, we ask, what is the task force? How can you, you know, I don't speak on behalf of you and you don't speak on behalf of me. So why would, you know, people that really don't understand disability speak on behalf, you know, particularly for First Nations people and those living with a disability? You know, we, we urgently ask that, you know, the, the agency set up an advisory structure of those people with disability to support them in, you know, any processes that, you know, they um, want to instigate to make it, you know, fairer for all, you know. You, you can't just take away something that was developed to, you know, as I said earlier, to support the most, you know, disadvantaged and vulnerable mm. in our Yeah. And, I mean, since NDIS's inception, um, there has been just such systemic flaws, um, such as people in prison not being able to access NDIS and funding not being available to pay for rent or food. So what are some of the ongoing concerns that you see Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples face when trying to access NDIS support or any um, disability support in general? Well, I think the biggest issue has always been for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that lack of, you know, cultural knowledge, um, the lack of, you know, um, understanding men's and women's business particularly in, you know, some of our um, more central, rural and remote regions, you know, and, you know, asking for, you know, a male person to assess, you know, a female, which is culturally very inappropriate. So, you know, these are some of the issues we already knew that were happening. But, you know, in regards to, you know, um, people in incarceration, you know, we have the highest rate of people incarcerated who should not be be there because they actually have a disability. And if they're supported with their disability needs, for most of the time, they would not be. But what we've seen is the jails are the new institutions that, you know, people with disability because there's nowhere else for them to access or, you know, be housed or or have the appropriate supports in their life. So, um, 
you know, in regards to, you know, most of our mob, they want to live on country and, and have, you know, that support of, you know, their community and family and members around them. But the way the current system is, you know, most people, if they want a, a service system, you know, in regards to their package, they have to move to larger cities because, you know, the market is very dry and very thin, you know, particularly in rural and remote areas. So, you know, we need more acknowledgement of training up, you know, local people to support our own people, um, you know, to allow, you know, first of all, you know, this is a good news story. It can be, you know, training and development and employment for many people to support their own. Mm. So a lot of work, you know, still needs to be done around the agency rather than thinning it down and dumbing it down and thinking that, you know, um, all people with disability are out to get the agency. And, and, you know, this is not so, you know. But as I said many times, they just want a good life like all of us. Um, and now to a different topic. Um, the Australian government is lagging behind on their targets for administering the COVID-19 vaccine and people with disabilities fall into the categories of phase 1A and 1B and then also Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples over um, age 55 are also in the second priority group. So can you speak a bit about how the COVID-19 vaccine rollout is progressing for the disability community? So first and foremost, it's very slow. We, you know, we're not really seeing a great take up, which is, you know, we're very concerned. You know, I mean, first of all, we had COVID, and our, you know, our own people, our own community circled around and and, and made sure communities were closed. Also, you know, um, those in the outside could not enter to protect our most vulnerable, which are the elders and those living with disability. But in regards to, you know, um, the daily information that comes from government, it creates fear in communities about, you know, and and, and it changes every day. So, you know, the the narrative is very uncertain for a lot of people, you know, which, you know, which jabs should they get? Are they eligible? You know, where can they get them? There's actually not enough information out. And particularly, you know, out of metropolitan regions, there's not enough centres to access, even if they wanted to. So, you know, we, we need to really make a concerted effort to ensure that our Aboriginal medical centres have total access to these vaccines. So, you know, people to, you know, particularly those living with a disability who are the vulnerable, you know, um, cohort. So, you know, there is a slow take up of this currently and and we're concerned for our people with disabilities. I mean, right at the beginning of, you know, when COVID started over a year ago, it was FPDN that wrote an ethics statement about, you know, supporting First Nations people and those living with a disability because the government, you know, in their 62-page health report did not mention, you know, First Nations people living with disability and how they would be, you know, fully supported. So again, you know, with this vaccine rollout, you know, we've got um, missed signals, misinformation, you know, and not a, you know, a high level of availability, particularly, you know, outside of metropolitan regions. Mm. And I know that the First Peoples Disability Network have also created some resources for the disability community um, about the rollout of this vaccine. Um, did you want to briefly speak about that and then just give listeners um, any other updates from FPDN? 
Yeah, so, um, you know, we knew that, you know, we there needed to be more information and more messaging, you know, out. And we know that, uh, you know, generally the Aboriginal population are high users of Facebook and Instagram. So, you know, we um, created our own graphics to, you know, daily put out on Instagram and Facebook about, you know, um, just basically saying, you know, have the jab, it's good for you, it's safe for you. And, and just to further, you know, give people that information. So we've got an array of graphics that we develop, you know, that we put out daily just to um, share that information and share that messaging because we're not seeing enough in, in on formal, you know, communication or media avenues around this is for you too, you know. I mean, the Aboriginal people, sometimes they feel, you know, that they're outside, you know, what happens you know, nationally, you know, and, and when they're not, in, you know, named or included, that they, they, they feel that this is not for them or, mm. you know, their fears ain't aligned. So, you know, we're just trying to, you know, share that information as much as we can with the community and, um, you know, and keep that up as we did during COVID about keeping safe yeah. and washing hands. And, you know, we did the same thing right through COVID and, and all our... Um, media and comms that we put out, we try to make it accessible for all people with disability. So, um, you know, that's our point of difference that we, you know, we, mm. we we try to include community in all conversations. Yeah. And there's just like such beautiful visuals that I don't think the Australian government um, yeah. has been using at all. So, yeah, I definitely recommend for listeners to actually just go and check out the First People's Disability Network website because there yeah, are such great resources for actually everybody um, to learn a bit more about the COVID-19 vaccine rollouts. Correct. Um, we and just try to keep our, you know, information around, you know, the cultural way of doing business, which is storytelling. Absolutely. And um, on that note, thank you so much, June, for speaking with 3CR at Breakfast this morning. Thank you very much and have a good day, everyone. June Remar from the First People's Disability Network speaking to us about the proposed changes to the National Disability Insurance Scheme as well as the slow rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine rollout to the disability community. You're with 3CR Radio this morning on 855am. Or maybe you're listening on the web somewhere at 3cr.org.au or on digital radio at 3CR Digital. Stay with us. Smartphone Stories is a fun, free workshop for anyone in the community who would like to make a film using just their smartphone. We're coming to the city of Yarra at the Bagunga Nanin North Fitzroy Library on Monday the 3rd and Monday the 10th of May. You can register for a place at www.smartphonestories.com. Proudly supported by VicHealth. A 3CR supporter. Hi, we are the Lumberjells. Hello, Nisamni Lumberjells. And we're from Canada. So you're listening to 3CR 855 AM Community Radio, and we just want to say support your local radio station. Way, hey, and away we go. Donkey riding, donkey riding. Way, hey, and away we go. Riding on a donkey. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. I'm Rima Rattan. Mention of the Tasmanian government's plan to build a prison in the north of the state, just outside the historic town of Westbury, has been conspicuously absent in the run-up to the state election to be held on Saturday, May 1st. Sharon Webb is a journalist at the Meander Valley Gazette, a free community newspaper covering the local council area of Meander Valley, where Westbury is located. 
She has been covering the proposed prison since it was first announced at the end of September in 2019. I have hardly heard it come up at all. The only time I've heard it come up actually was when I asked the question at the Premier's um, campaign launch at Campbelltown when he launched all the candidates. And I asked the question, are you looking for a mandate from this election from the prison? And he said, uh, no, it's already uh, been decided and um, when, when we get re-elected, we'll be getting on with it. My belief um, is that they'd want to downplay the issue. I think that they don't want any demonstrations during the campaign or they just want to pretend it's a, it's a done deal. Um, in the uh, months leading up to the election, actually for most of this year, they've gone very quiet on the prison and I think the not talking about it during the campaign is a strategy that they've worked out long before this. The Tasmanian government has long been planning to build a prison in the north of the state. Why is that? Well, good question. Um, I don't know is the short answer, but I can tell you what they're saying about why they want to build a prison in the north of the state. They're saying that they're such sharing and caring politicians that they want people who are in prison to um, be able to see their families more easily. Now, if you are in the north of the state, you've got probably about a three-hour drive to get to the prison, which is in Risdon Vale in Hobart. So you've got about a three-hour drive down there and then a three-hour drive back. If you're on the northwest coast, it's more like five hours drive. So and that's that's if you've got a car. So um, they are saying, well, you know, um, recidivism is less and people are more likely to be rehabilitated if they are in prison um, and their families can see them there. So that's what they're saying. The real reason is, I don't know. Is there any evidence that recidivism will? Have they shown any evidence that that's actually going to happen or like is likely to happen? They not on recidivism as such, but um, I think there 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 is some evidence that people are more likely to be rehabilitated and not reoffend if if they can um, maintain uh, good contact with their family. Okay. I think that's been seen elsewhere. But, you know, I refuse to believe that politicians are such sharing, caring people. Um, and I believe that there may be other um, reasons of political advantage. On September 30, 2019, the state government announced that it would build a new prison in an industrial site two and a half kilometres from the historic town of Westbury in northern Tasmania at the cost of $270 million. Nine months later, it announced that it had changed the site. Both announcements took the entire community by surprise. I spoke to Meander Valley Mayor Wayne Johnston in early February, and this is what he had to say about the state government's announcement of its plan to build a prison in northern Tasmania. So the state government's been talking about the northern prison for quite a few years. I couldn't tell you how many years. Um, I guess it's been on the periphery. Um, it was uh, mentioned obviously a couple of years prior. When I became mayor in uh, November, we had a briefing from the then general manager about 10 days after we, we came on as councillors, as a new councillor and mayor, and it, was, it wasn't just a briefing of 
the potential of a prison coming to Westbury. It was a briefing on, on lots of issues. Yeah. So, yeah. So it was off the yeah. It was in the middle of November we were briefed on part of that. And yeah. what, what did that briefing cover? Oh, basically that um, the state government were looking at uh, potentially ten sites in the north of Tasmania. Um, from memory, uh, we would know or hear back from the state government sometime in March and would go from there. So, and did you hear no, 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 we didn't hear anything on the Northern Prison until about, no testimony memory, until about June, I guess. Um, and that was, that was, I've got to think about that, that was a preliminary, the general manager said this, that uh, state government were uh, interested in having a conversation regarding the Northern Prison. And did you have that conversation? We went into a meeting um, in, oh, I'd have to check my dates, but I think off the top of my head, July or August, here at the Council Chambers, where the um, Department of Justice um, came up to have a conversation. That was the meeting that um, I had to sign a confidentiality agreement before I went into that meeting. Uh, and even then, um, they didn't specify that Westbury would be picked as the spot for the prison. It was still a, a, a decision wasn't made yes. at that stage. So I didn't realise that Westbury was, was going to be picked as a potential northern prison site until the announcement on the Monday morning, I think it was, with the minister out of Valley Central. So you didn't know before the announcement was made that it was being made? Nope. Right. I was just asked to turn up at a set time, at a set spot, with the minister for announcement on the northern prison, I had, we had no plans. It must have been an inkling because the council was putting the EOI for that spot. Yes, but the council put in a couple of EOIs. Sorry, the council put forward a couple of EOIs on behalf of, of landowners. Still, didn't realise that that was the spot. We yeah. we hadn't didn't have that conversation with the with the state government. Right. So, so you find out about it on the day. On the, we were told that we had to be that the minister was going to be up on the Monday morning, I think it was, and I think I was probably told that over the weekend, yeah. uh, and asked to tell no one else. So I guess that's when I knew that something was going to happen. Yes. And did you start some sort of community consultation, or did you speak to the minister about the need for a community consultation? Yes, we did. But again, it's a state government process, so therefore uh, I, we expected that the state would do the consultation. To be honest. Yeah. yeah, but I, mean, I guess. Part of the local government act requires you to advocate for for your constituents, yep. which include the people of Westbury. Yep. And, and the prison has, well, my impression is an outsider who has no skin in the game, is that it's a, it's a divisive issue. It has turned into a divisive issue, absolutely. Yes. That's correct. Have you, have you reported that back to the state government? Yes. Yes, and what was, what's the response? Uh, well, we initiated the state government to start the consultation process. Um, which they did, and they ran it. It was not council ran. Yes. Uh, we responded back to the state government uh, numerous times when um, the residents of the of Westbury and other areas came forward with concerns. So at every opportunity, we've um, gone back to the state to let them know that the that the people are happy or not happy. I suppose there's more more communication come about not happy with where the, the siting was yes. for Valley Central. And how has the state government responded? Well, the state government basically said thank you for your response and we will go forward and, and do what we see fit. And I guess what's come out of that uh, consultation is for them then to change sites.
The government's plan generated fierce opposition from the local community, leading to the creation of a community group, Westbury Residents Against the Prison. RAP spokesman Linda Poulton told me in late January about how the group was formed. RAP was formed not long after the announcement by the state government in October 2019 uh, that there was going to be a prison built um, on the edge of our town. Uh, so the announcement was made on the 30th of September 2019 and we had incorporated um, two months later, although there were certainly a large bunch of us that were unincorporated and active before then. How did it, how did it come about? Uh, essentially it came about after a large um, uh, meeting in the town hall which was organised by a small bunch of people, very well attended meeting uh, and after that we, at that meeting we asked people to, who were interested in opposing the prison to hang around and, um, and see whether they could become members of um, an incorporated association uh, designed to oppose the prison. I also asked Linda why people in Westbury are against the prison. Well there are a lot of elderly people in the community and the demographic here, um, the demographic here, you, our meetings, the public meetings and the, our membership base, a lot of them are older people. Uh, and I think they perceive, rightly or wrongly, and we, we haven't done any scaremongering on this. This <laughs> We could be putting posters around town, you know, telling people it's going to become awful, but we haven't done any of that. People have formed their own view that they do not, they would feel less safe here if this was to go ahead. And I don't think the extra distance has made them feel any better about that. I think it's been a little bit of relief, but I think ultimately people move here and live here and have settled here for decades because it's a quiet country town where they feel safe. And that's, that's what's motivated a lot of people to, to be opposed to it, that they will feel less safe in a place that they've, they've settled in because they, that's part of the reason they're here. They don't live in Launceston or larger urban centres but there's also support for the prison in Westbury, although it is not formally organised into a group like RAP. Supporters of the prison have coalesced around a Facebook group. Grace Rock is the administrator of the page, and I asked her about how it evolved. And when the site was announced, um, you know, suddenly the, the community safety information got flooded with the prison topic. So, um, so I thought maybe, you know, we'll just take all the prison topic out so people can still find their cats and and that's how it started that's how it started yeah. but it broadly the, it's moved from an information such to a pro-prison in terms of comments yes okay. but still yeah. the information being published is and it's still the same like I planned anything that I can find is simply published over there, yeah. be it pro or against. I also asked Grace about why people support the proposed prison being built in Westbury. We want that prison to happen because it's a great project which will, you know, like I mentioned, it, it will create jobs for current residents, it will create jobs for the younger generation if they choose to work over there. And um, we would like just the best we can get for this town. On June 18, 2020, the state government announced that the prison would now be built five kilometres from Westbury on Crown land in a nature reserve two and a half kilometres further down Birrelly Road. I asked Meander Valley Gazette journalist Sharon Webb about the reason the government gave for changing the site. They claimed, and here my cynicism comes to the fore again, 
they claimed that they had listened to people in Westbury who didn't want it um, near the town. So they claimed they'd listened to them and moved the site a couple of kilometres further along the road, away from the town. That was the reason that, that they gave, that they'd listened to people in Westbury. I think that they wanted to look as if they'd, they'd listened, but there's maybe some advan- more advantageous reason for having the prison on the Birrelly Road on that site. For example, the uh, government is building a freight route from uh, Bell Bay in the north of the state, so through Exeter, and using the Birrelly Road as a route to get freight through to the northwest coast and back on that same route. They have got federal government funding to widen the roads and build that route. Now, that would mean that the prison would be on a freight route on a road wide enough to take trucks to deliver things to the prison and it would just be on a well-used travel route. At the moment, the road is quite small and quite dangerous for passing and that kind of thing. But they've already got the plan to build this freight route. And guess what? The route is going directly past the proposed prison site. So the reasons for the prison being there are more complicated uh, than probably I I even know. During a short stay in Westbury in January, I visited the new site with Sarah Lloyd, a naturalist living in the nearby settlement of Birali, who has done numerous bird and plant surveys in northern Tasmania. She has also written a guide published by the government for people who have land for wildlife properties or properties with conservation covenants on managing species on their land. After our site tour, I asked Sarah about the reserve, which is variously known as Westbury Reserve, Brushy Riverlet Reserve or Marnie's Hill Reserve. It was purchased in 1999 for conservation because of a threatened vegetation community, because it was contiguous with other forests, and they also noticed it had several rare plant species, or one rare plant, actually the plant um, blue pincushion, Brunonia australis, was classified vulnerable at the time. But they also had observed betongs, which are not um, actually listed, but are regarded as an important species. So it had lots of environmental uh, values that the chief botanist who worked at forestry at the time was keen to preserve. He didn't want to see this block logged and um, with a plantation on the block, which was what the um, owner wanted. Right, so who purchased it from the owner? So it was the Commonwealth. Um, during the RFA, it was Commonwealth Government funds for the comprehensive, adequate and representative car reserve system under the RFA. So that's the, the program where they tried to reserve a certain percentage of the original forest types across the country. So it's an, the RFA was Australia-wide. And um, what happened with this land? I mean, what was the plan to... Was it conserved? Well, was it, was it supported by the federal government? What happens next? Well, what happened then was at some stage, and I'm not quite sure when and why and who um, decided it wasn't this uh, vegetation community, uh, the government, the, the, the environmental values of the site were still recognised and I can't remember the date, but I will have it somewhere. Mm. It was handed to the Tasmanian Land Conservancy for part of their revolving fund. And the Tasmanian Land Conservancy's revolving fund 
was a process whereby they have land and they put a conservation covenant on it but they also have a building envelope so they can then sell it on to people with conservation values. What do you mean by building envelope? Uh, just a, a, a section of the building where it would be appropriate to build a house. Oh, a section of the site where they build a house. Yeah, So, and that's now where the prison's going to be. Right, so the government is using the Tasmanian Land Conservancy's assessment of the site. Well, that's interesting as well because when the Tasmanian Land Conservancy was trying to decide where to put the footprint, they came across problems. For a start, it had to be with outside this 500 metre line of sight of the eagle's nest and it had to be where it wasn't destroying threatened plants. Now, there was Brunonia, the rare blue pincushion, was known to occur there, but in one of the reports, the botanist who originally assessed it said there should be more botanical surveys done before this is decided. And to my knowledge, there weren't any more botanical surveys. And my botanical surveys that have happened since the prison site was announced, proposed prison site was, was announced, indicates that this is actually a botanical hotspot where the housing footprint was um, proposed. You've been going to the site for a long time. Yes. Well, I started going there in about 2005, I think. And the reason I went there was because it was fantastic for birds. And I've done a lot of bird surveys in the region, um, in the Meander Valley region, um, for citizen science projects run by BirdLife Australia, which is the peak ornithological organisation in the country. And I knew the site was important because a lot of the birds that I was seeing at Westbury Reserve are no longer occurring at some of the sites that I was monitoring elsewhere. And I saw rare species. I have photographs of the Tasmanian mast owl that is listed as vulnerable on the EPBC Act. White goshawk or grey goshawk um, is not listed federally but it is listed on the Tasmanian legislation as endangered and the Tasmanian wedge-tailed eagle's nest, which is actually one that I discovered on Brushy Rubulet. So they're all which these is on one end of the property. Yes, it's, it's actually um, on the adjoining property, but it still has an impact on, on Westbury Reserve. So I was, you know, there are rare and threatened species there, mm. and um, since the proposed prison was announced, I found more species that are important. I think the previous botanist who was working for the government and then resigned, he found another rare plant. So there are three rare plants and other people have found pellets of master owl and I have videos of Tasmanian devils using the site. So it's, it's you know, every time you go there it just seems more and more important for the biodiversity of the site and much more inappropriate as a place for a prison. What would it take for the government? I mean, to build on that site, it's, we went there earlier, yeah. it's, it's, quite, it's forested. It's forested, so they, they would have to clear the forest. Um, they're saying that the f prison footprint is 13 hectares, but... Of a total? Of a total of 70 hectares. Mm -hmm. That doesn't really account for the damage that um, any... So, and, and possibly they'd have, have to level the site as well. I mean, one of the advantages of the first site, the industrial zone, was that it was a level site. Mm. The other thing about the site, of course, is that it doesn't have any power. 
there's no water, there's no sewage, there's no internet, and the road is completely inadequate. So they'll completely damage the whole site. I mean, you can't clear, level, destroy 13 hectares without having a major impact on the rest of the reserve. I mean, there are going to be workers there, there are going to be 400 workers there, apparently, according to the Department of Justice website, and um, presumably they'll have to park somewhere while they're working at the reserve. There's a big issue with runoff. Um, the contours clearly show that there's a, like an ephemeral waterway that runs straight into Brushy Rivulet. Brushy Rivulet is as pristine as any waterways in this region. I think it only passes through a very small area of agricultural land, otherwise it is forested land from where it, um, from the source at Brushy Lagoon. It is for, uh, has been heavily logged, but nevertheless it's um, in pretty good condition. If more siltation in Brushy Rivulet and pollution, it will have an impact further downstream on the Meander River and ultimately in the Tamer where there's a huge siltation problem. When it was first being purchased by the government... For, from the private owner. Yeah, from, from the private owner. He was wanting to log it and put in a plantation. And at that time, there was an enormous amount of logging going on in these dry forests. And they were clearing out what they called degraded trees for um, wood chips. And these degraded trees are what the birds really like because they've got hollows in them and there are a lot of hollow-dependent birds in Tasmania. Well, not, not all that many, but, you know, we've got species like the masked owl, um, the native um, green rosella, the endemic parrot. They're all hollow-nesting species, and they need these trees. So when they... And, and one thing about Westbury Reserve are these huge hollow-bearing eucalypts just scattered throughout the reserve... Mm and um, a lot of these are just disappearing from the landscape. The new site has intensified opposition. Apart from RAP, which opposes the second site as well, there are now two other community groups against the prison. One of the groups is concerned residents opposed to the Westbury Reserve, or Crowps. It consists of eight families whose properties are next to the reserve. I asked the group's spokesperson, Aaron Reader, about Crowps. The group was formed the day that we got the phone call that it was going to be announced. So that would have been the 18th of June? Yeah. And who yeah. called you about it? Who did call us about that? It would have been... Um, it was actually the Justice Department. Mm -hmm. Someone within the Justice Department had actually called us, actually, yeah. 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 And there was, was there any contact with the government before? No, none whatsoever. We, we had no idea that that this site was even being considered or thought about. We were, we were still under the assumption that the other site was still being investigated uh, th at that stage. Are you opposed to the other site? Uh, we are because it's too close to Westbury, yeah. So we, we are opposed to the other site. Um, the only thing was is that from a practical building point of view, the other site is a better site being in, in an industrial area and it has all the services. Um, so if you compared the two sites alone on their own, you would say that the other site, the first site, was a better site. Um, but it's still too close to Westbury, and, and at the end of the day, Westbury does not want the prison right next to, to Westbury. It's just, it doesn't suit the town, it doesn't suit the character of the town, and, and 
I don't feel that we're going to get any benefit out of it having the prison here either as far as employment or anything else, despite what the government says. Why, why wouldn't you get employment benefits? I, I don't believe we are because the, at the end of the day, the building and the construction of it, a lot of that's all going to be the bigger companies to come in and do that. So, OK, the local takeaway shop and stuff like that might get a bit of a benefit and potentially there may be some people eventually live in Westbury that might work at the prison, but because we are so close to Launceston and so close to the northwest, and you're talking about like prison officers and everything else that have to be trained and, and qualified to do all that sort of stuff and, and all the other services associated with the prison, most of that's going to come out of Launceston. So I don't believe the community is going to get enough benefit out of it if it's to be in Westbury, as well as obviously Westbury has a lot of general concerns around the whole exercise of having the prison there and the type of people that it may bring to Westbury, knowing what we already know about what happens in Hobart, so in, in Risdon. So what's your aim as a group? What are you hoping to achieve? Well, our aim as a group is to protect that reserve, yeah. that, that um, um, informal, they're calling it informal Crown Reserve, Brushy Rivulet Crown Reserve. Our aim is to, to make sure that we protect that area as it was supposed to be protected um, with the money that was spent from the federal government to protect that area. So that's, that's our main aim. Another less formal community group opposing the prison has sprung up in Birralee, a small settlement of around 65 households around 10 kilometres from the current site. Tori Taylor is the spokesperson for the Birralee Road group. When the second site was announced, Tori did a letterbox drop to gauge feeling in her small community. So from that I had six people who contacted me and I had the um, other five, including my house, who I knew who were against it. So that left us with 12 households that I was aware of who were opposed. And the main issue being the wildlife being destructed but also the road. And the road we felt was as was a big issue as well that um, wasn't really being looked at or looked at by other people sort of stuff. But um, what everyone affects everybody is the road. Yes. So that's where we thought that um, that's where we would sort of focus our, our issue. What is your ideal outcome? My ideal outcome would be... Or your group's ideal outcome. I don't know where they should put the prison. Like, people in our group aren't against the idea of it. We don't know where they should put it, but I think from our point of view, it should be somewhere where there's existing infrastructure to cope with it, with what it will involve, especially in construction, but also once it's operational, there's existing roads, facilities even. I think Westbury's a really small town that um, some people say, yeah, it could bring business to the town, but um, some people say they're not sure if it's the type of business that they're, they're wanting. But I think for our point of view, in my point of view, it should be on an area where there's already existing roads and infrastructure just ready and waiting for it, not something that's going to um, you know, make a dangerous road even more dangerous. But I've known people, even in the Birralee group, who were neutral about the other site, didn't care, but are now against because they don't want the destruction of the wildlife and so on. So there may even be the case in Westbury that there are more people who are more opposed than were for the first time. Mm. At the end of the day, all of the things that are done and all planning things, they all have to pull up the Natural Values Register as part of their requirement to put any application in. The same when we put our DA in for our, for our house and, and turning this into a farm and everything else, we had to put that application in. We had to do report after report after report to do our, our DA. 
and all of those all have to drag up the natural values asset register. Mm-hmm. And nearly the core of all of those applications is based around that. Where are all the endangered species? Where are all the threatened species, whether that be flora or fauna? And then it's all based around, right, if they're all there and you're doing this here and it's far enough away, then that's okay. So I can't see why it is any different. And given that that area is an absolute hotspot, then I can't see how you can possibly do that. If it was a general member of the community owned that piece of land and it had that much natural values on it and they put any application in to do anything to that land, it just attracts all this attention from the department. But it seems to be that when the government decide they want to put something on there, that none of those things are an issue. There's ways around every single one of them. Whereas if you and I went to do it, there's, you know, snowflakes, hope and hell of ever going anywhere near it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that's the thing that probably even frustrates us. We have this thing hanging over us all the time, when we have done for the last, what, six, eight months now, nine months, that we don't know what's going to happen to that site and whether our life's going to be affected dramatically because of it. And yet we see all of this stuff in front of us that says, well, any blind person would look at it and say, it shouldn't go there because of all of this. It's not even worth chasing the rest of the infrastructure stuff because it just shouldn't go there. So why waste the time and money and put all of these residents and potentially the residents of Westbury, put them through all of that stress and anxiety about having it there, as well as all the social arguments and and stress and pressure around that, why put them through all that when you don't have to, when it's pretty obvious that it doesn't go there? That was Aaron Reader, spokesperson for concerned residents opposed to the Westbury Reserve site, summarising the distress of many residents of the area around and in Westbury. The Tasmanian government has said it is currently undertaking due diligence of the informal reserve where it wants to build its northern prison. Stay tuned to 3CR. That's it for 3CR's breakfast show this morning. Thanks for your company. Tune in across the week for more community current affairs and stay with us now. We're on the line is up next. Thanks for listening. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. Thanks for listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR.